We didn't have a creed as part of our communion uh, service, but this might, beginning of the church year might be a good time to review Way of Jesus. So uh, if you can dust that off in your memory. Uh, I like to think of three B's for the first three sayings, and then that transitions into three L's. If that helps you, you can figure out your own system. But uh, I have begun to follow Jesus, and I'm depending upon the Spirit of Jesus in my journey. I'm being sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. I'm learning to be like Jesus in my attitudes, behaviors, and character. I'm learning to love God and love others. I'm learning the teachings of Jesus. I am helping someone, and someone is helping me to be a reproducing follower of Jesus. And I am participating in a community of followers of Jesus on mission to the world. So that kind of sums up Jesus' mission. His mission is our mission. That's kind of what we're about as a church. So today's message, hope versus heaviness, the caution his coming affords. Uh, first section, when the road falls out from under you. Last week it was flooding in BC out on our west coast. This week it was flooding in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland on our east coast. And it sounds like BC may be in for more of it. The storms, atmospheric rivers. What is an atmospheric river? What will it be next week? When calamities befall us and it seems the proverbial stool is knocked out from under us, where can we find hope? What can keep us pushing onward towards a positive goal? Davy Fraser works for Parks Canada as a heavy equipment operator and truck driver. On Tuesday, he was just past the entrance to Cape Breton Highlands National Park doing traffic control and checking for flooding. Driving, driving slowly in poor visibility through the pouring rain, he thought he saw some mud which he took to be runoff from the shoulder of the road. Suddenly, his truck fell about six meters into a hole. He told CBC News, It was almost like I hit a brick wall, but I was down in the hole when I hit. I didn't even feel the truck drop. I was just going and bang. The paramedics advised him to get an x-ray, but there was no way to get to the hospitals because of flooding and road washouts. The area received about 26 centimeters of rain, so kind of nearly a foot. Davy Fraser says his chest and ribs are sore and figures he broke his nose. But that's not all. There's more. When he got home to Inganish, he found his basement was flooded, his roof was leaking, and his well had washed away. Poor guy. He was not a well man. Give him credit, though. Fraser plans to return to work Monday or Tuesday and chalks his experience up to being one of the duties of the job. Atta boy, Davy. What a guy. So on people like that, a nation is built. Perhaps you have had bad days like Davy. He was having enough trouble to last a year, not just a day. Are there times the road seems to fall out from under you? 
obstacles that seem like you've hit a brick wall. You're just going along, minding your business, and suddenly from out of nowhere, whammo! What can keep us going when hard times hit? Where do we find hope when life seems to be caving in upon us from all sides? A passing of the permanent. That last week in Jerusalem, the disciples got to play tourist in the big city. Herod's temple was truly an impressive structure, having taken 46 years to build. A single stone at the southwest corner measured 36 feet long. Try and lift that sucker. Herod donated a golden vine for one of its decorations. Its grape clusters were as tall as a person in gold. Josephus records, whatever was not overlaid with gold was purest white because of the marble. The temple was a symbol of the kingdom's prosperity and a source of national pride. Earlier in a passage in chapter 21, Luke records, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But what they were so impressed by was not permanent even if it was imposing at the time. Jesus replies in verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And that came true within a generation of him predicting it, when the Romans conquered and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Is there some glistening, shiny, golden temple in your life that you've poured yourself into in order to impress other people? Do you suppose it's really a lasting monument to your greatness? Is it what gives you value in your own imagination? What's really meant to give our life lasting value? Is it from working long, hard hours amassing wealth? Is it from attaining positions of power where we can tell others what to do? Is it from acquiring the latest and greatest shiny new toys? Oh, check out those Black Friday sales. Can't wait for Cyber Monday. There's a theme in the discourse that Jesus proceeds to give. It's the passing of the permanent. The disciples ask, when will these things happen? Well, verses 8 to 24 focus more or less on events that would happen in the disciples' own lifetimes, persecution, and in particular, the downfall of Jerusalem. That's primarily Jesus' answer about these things in their question. But those are a launching point, foreshadowings in a way of the more global or cosmic upheavals that will happen leading up to his return, which he turns to in the remainder of the chapter. For instance, the land and sea, the heavenly bodies in verses 25-26. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Hmm. Could it be an asteroid? Some scientists conjecture that a giant asteroid was responsible for wiping out the dinosaurs. Certainly an asteroid could have been involved in triggering the biblical flood, leading to massive atmospheric changes on a cosmic scale. 
This past week, NASA launched a DART spacecraft on a rocket aiming at an asteroid's moonlit many millions miles away in a practice test, hoping to adjust the moonlet's velocity and thus change the asteroid's trajectory further away from intersecting with the Earth. And don't sweat, we're not in any real danger this time, it's just a practice run. But last week, we saw Jesus multiply loaves and fishes and cause a boat to mysteriously arrive at its destination after being racked by stormy waves in the middle of a lake. When you believe in God as creator, you don't even require an asteroid for system change. The so-called laws of nature are merely descriptions of how natural objects behave. They don't prescribe what must happen. If God wants to adjust, say, the force of gravity or the speed of light or the ratio between mass and energy or the strength of subatomic forces, he doesn't require your or my permission to do so. At least, I hope you're worshipping a God that big. Any lesser God would not really be worthy of worship, would he? God's right and authority to govern the universe are foundational tenets of faith. Psalm 102:25. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. When the six of seven seals is opened in John's vision of the future, Revelation 6.14, the sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Like a scroll, like, like a book being closed. And the author ends the story as the saying goes, that's all she wrote. The Lord has a new stage waiting for the next adventure. Jesus adds in Luke 21:33, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God spoke the world into being, according to Genesis 1. So God's word is outside of time, bigger than the created order. The world as we know it is serving his purpose. The earth is full of his unfailing love, Psalm 119:64. But his word is more permanent than the Canadian shield or Mount Everest. Should we be concerned about the environment if it's all just going to get burned up? Does Christianity provide an ethical basis for stewardship of our planet? If Second Peter 3.10 is true, it says... But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That is the larger context, yes. But as long as we are put here, the Bible does have an emphasis of stewarding the planet well. Yes, Genesis 1.28 has God commanding humans to fill the earth and subdue it. But Genesis 2.15 adds specifically, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Enoch to work it and take care of it. Nature is something God has entrusted to our care, to manage and protect, not to exploit wastefully. Last week we saw Jesus instruct the disciples to pick up leftovers from feeding the multitude in baskets so that nothing be wasted. 
When God is taken out of the picture as a naturalism, the climate can become an idol, witness many protesters traveling to Glasgow for COP26. Christians do not worship the environment, but neither should we treat it carelessly, for we are accountable to God for how we manage what he has created and entrusted to us. Just because the planet may be removed eventually does not give us an excuse to neglect it in the meantime. It's kind of a sidebar, but it's a pretty important issue, the environment these days and our Christian worldview, kind of how do those mix. Next section, the coming of the unseen Christ. The disciples marveled at the visual treasures in Herod's temple, but Jesus wants them to realize their worth does not come from some external symbol of national pride that can be printed on a tourism brochure. Instead, their worth is linked to a relationship with him, even when he's unseen. The shaking and tossing of what seems permanent now, sun, moon, stars, the oceans, is but preliminary to Jesus' return. Advent is about coming. You think veneer, the verb in French, to come. So the believer's hope and significance lie in the relationship to their coming Savior. Verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now this is exactly what the Old Testament prophet Daniel was referring to. Uh, 7.13, in my vision at night I, Daniel, looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Jesus uses the same label to refer to himself, son of man, identifying himself with the central character in Daniel's prophecy. Right from the time of the ascension, the New Testament refers to Jesus coming back physically. Acts 1, 9 to 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, this is the ascension of Jesus, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were, the disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The classic passage on Jesus' return is in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a large, loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. You don't want to be shut out, but to be among those in whom Jesus is glorified, who will be marveling at him. Our culture is increasingly drifting away from God. It's a taboo topic in our schools and public square. 
Simultaneously, the culture loses a sense of its origin and destiny, and with that, morality and meaning. For Christians, the coming of Jesus presents an alternative worldview in which we have a destiny as well as an origin. The punishment and judgment associated with Jesus' coming give life meaning and purpose, accountability, and a gauge of morality. It represents the visible incursion of God's kingdom. Luke 21, 31, Jesus says, Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' coming also gives us value and worth. Verse 28b, because your redemption is drawing near. To redeem is to buy back. Jesus, giving his life, was of infinite value. He laid down his life to buy us forgiveness, to save us for eternal relationship with him. Verse 36, pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man, to stand, to be counted worthy of entering into and remaining in his presence. King James Version renders it, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Unfortunately, many will not be able to stand in his presence, but will be banished forever, shut out from his presence as Paul put it. Looking forward to being able to stand before the Lord Jesus, behold the majesty of his power and marvel at him, gives us hope and anticipation on our worst days. Knowing that you are dear to him, oh, how he loves you and me. Last section, uh, watching and waiting, not waited. Jesus closes this discourse on massive future events with an exhortation for his followers to be on guard against worldly cares and attractions that would ambush us and drag us off course. Verses 34 and 36. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. Here he lists three things that would weigh us down, like a marathon runner suddenly being handed a backpack with several anvils inside and being told to wear it while keeping on running. And number one is dissipation. The lexicon describes this as the giddiness and headache caused by drinking wine to excess. You don't want a drunk person to be driving because their judgment is impaired. You don't want to feel like they feel the morning after in the middle of their hangover. For some people today, life is about lurching from one party to the next, enduring the week for the sake of the weekend. Alcohol or drugs become the means of escape or sedation from the boredom of life. In the version Krista was reading from, it was uh, this word dissipation was translated carousing, Singing things like bar crawling, how we'd put it today. Or, but uh, even if you're not a drinker or doing drugs, what is your escape mechanism? Like, do you, do you try and get away from life somehow? What's your escape? Uh, watch out that that doesn't become your focus, your idol. Anvil number two is drunkenness. Unfortunately, the pandemic has not helped people's mental health. 
resulting in abuse of substances to become epidemic. But again, without the bookends of creation and Christ's return to give meaning to existence, what's to stop people from living to party? As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15.32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You even got a Bible verse for it. Anvil number three is the anxieties of life. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed and the thorns that choked out the crop? Matthew 13.22, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth Choke it, making it unfruitful. Maybe you're pretty self-controlled. You're not the partying type. You're not given to dissipation or drunkenness. But you can still get weighed down by this life's concerns. This is huge in our North American context. Worry is a robber. Not just of your sleep, but can also rob you of the joy and hope of anticipating seeing your Savior. How can we avoid getting dragged down and out of the race by these three anvils, says Jesus? By being careful. Be always on the watch and pray. Prayer gives eternal perspective to our daily challenges. When you pause to step into God's throne room, suddenly your problems don't seem so big. You are reminded his power and sovereignty can handle whatever is challenging you. And earth's attractions aren't so appealing compared to the glories that await you. The television program 2020 once showed an experiment on self-control with children. They were told that they could have a single treat such as a cookie right now. However, if they would wait while the reporter ran an errand, they could have two cookies. Well, some preschoolers grabbed the cookie immediately. Others were able to wait for what must have seemed to them like an endless 20 minutes. To sustain themselves in their struggle, they covered their eyes so they wouldn't see the temptation, rested their heads on their arms, talked to themselves, sang, even tried to sleep. Those who endured to the end received the two-cookie reward. The follow-up of this study found that the children who were able to forego the instant gratification kept that same temperament throughout their adolescence. The more impulsive kids who grabbed the cookie were more likely to be stubborn, indecisive, and stressed. Set your heart on the long-term target. Hoping in Jesus helps you have more peace in the interim. This life's cookie will be gone all too soon anyway. Today we've just celebrated communion. It's a meal at the Lord's table, not just here at this location, but in a way anticipating the day we'll enjoy a feast in the presence of our Savior and with those who have already fallen asleep in their Lord. Hope sustains us through daily challenges and life's upsets and brick walls when your truck falls down into a hole. In 1965, naval aviator James B. Stockdale became one of the first American pilots to be shot down during the Vietnam War. As a prisoner of the Viet Cong, he spent seven years as a POW, during which he was frequently tortured in an attempt to break him and get him to denounce the U.S. involvement in the war. 
He was chained for days at a time with his hands above his head so that he could not even swat the mosquitoes. Today he still cannot bend his left knee and walks with a severe limp from having his leg broken by his captors and never reset. One of the worst things done to him was that he was held in isolation away from the other American POWs and allowed to see only his guards and interrogators. How could anyone survive seven years of such treatment? As he looked back on that time, Stockdale, later a vice admiral, awarded the Medal of Honor, said that it was his hope that kept him alive. Hope of one day going home, that each day could be the day of his release. Without hope, he knew that he would die in hopelessness as others had done. Such is the power of hope that can keep one alive when nothing else can. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your greatness. The earth and the sun and the moon and the whole universe are in your hands and can't be shaken without your awareness. You are our foundation, our sure ground, even when we hit brick walls or life seems to be spinning out of control. Your words outlast the created order. Thank you for the hope of Jesus' return, for the delight it will be to behold him and marvel in his beauty and goodness. Help us to be watchful, to resist evil draws that might sway us off course. When life is tough, help us draw strength from you and to stand at the last. In Jesus' name, amen.